Next, the first slide there, Jack. There we go. Oh, man, you can't even see them. Sorry, Ethan. I coached them both uh, through the basic moves of chess, you know. I wasn't one of those dads. I know some of you were. Or you had a dad like this who just slaughtered their kids every time you played because you figured life was rough and just teach them, you know, teach them that from the start. I wasn't one of those dads. So I'd coach them through and I'd, you know, I'd show them how to do the moves. And, and for a long time, it was me playing against myself, you understand. But, but they liked it. And so we'd, we'd learn together. And as they got a bit more, um, you know, accustomed to the rules, I kind of show them how to make moves like this. Okay. Do you see this here? And this is how, when this happens, you do this. And I kind of explain the strategy and walk them through it. And they, and they, they loved it. And we, we, we played a lot together. Well, the day finally came, the infamous day, the day in history, April, uh, let's see, I wrote it down the 17th, 2012. Next picture. That's it, folks. That picture. That exact there, that, that, look at it. That's the day Ethan beat me. And I was really, really trying not to be beaten. <laughs> Other days I kind of let him beat me. That was the day, folks, that I was sweating as I realized, oh no, he's got me. And I could not pull up, you know? I couldn't do it. So that was a, a pretty uh, a proud uh, 11-year-old boy who, who beat his dad. Now, now we've gone on from there to play, and we've been pretty evenly matched all along, but somehow a couple months ago, I think it was about a month ago, Ethan and I went out for coffee with the chessboard, and it was brutal. The blood was everywhere. <laughs> Seven times in a row. And I kept saying... Let's try it again, thinking, surely I've got to beat him one of these games. Seven times in a row. I was very satisfied and wanted to send a little shout out and thank you to Roger for schooling him so hard at the games night because he needed that little bit of humility. Uh, thank you, Roger. Actually, it was kind of interesting. He came home and he said, Roger uses different strategies than you do. <laughs> and uh, we might come back to that theme because there's something there. But yeah, he, he learned my strategies. He knew my opening moves. And uh, Roger, yours just really surprised him. So thank you for that. You know, getting good at chess is all about learning strategies to win. Strategies maybe to overcome another person's weaknesses uh, so you can defeat your uh, opponent. You know, one of the first strategies is you always teach uh, anyone who's learning how to play. You always teach them the very simple four-move checkmate. All you chess players, you know what that is, right? Sometimes it's called the scholar's checkmate. Four moves. Bam, checkmate. It's always kind of fun, if someone's never learned it before, to just destroy them in four moves, and, and then you just play again. But once you know the strategy, like once you, you're aware of what it is, it's very easy to block. And you can see it coming. You can just simply evade it, maybe even turn it to your advantage. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the fun is kind of sucked right out of it. But that's the four-move checkmate. But what if I were to tell you this morning that there's actually – a way that you can defeat a Christian in only three moves, not four. That our enemy actually has a basic strategy for defeating us, and that way too many Jesus followers are, are unaware of it. They haven't learned how to block this move. And the result is ineffective, defeated Christians. People who 
want to follow Jesus, have said they're trying to follow Jesus, but often end up just kind of languishing over on the corner. Maybe in the ditch somewhere. These three moves, I'm going to lay them right out right now, and we're going to see them this morning as we dig into the Revelation. I called it the devil's checkmate. I made that up. But here it is. First move, to gut our confidence in Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. Next move is to create confusion about the good news of Jesus. And the third move is to make us fearful for our lives. That's it. And here, here's the crazy thing. You know, all, all the moves in, a, in, in chess, all the moves in the four-move checkmate, they all have to work or it doesn't work at all. But with these moves, the enemy can, the enemy can perform any one of these moves against us. And if they're successful, we're somehow being defeated. We're somehow uh, not making it. He'll have us cornered. <coughs> Three moves. Can gut our confidence, create confusion, or make us fearful. That's it. That's all it takes. And it's super inf- effective. Unless you and I have somehow been trained to recognize the moves, to see the strategy, and to block him, we won't even see it coming. But because we know the basic strategy, we're like the, we're like the chess player that, you know, this punk kid starts using the four-move checkmate. You know exactly what's happening. Block, block, bam. No problem. When we know the enemy's basic strategy, we can turn the tables on him and we can even win. Today we're going to learn how to do just that. We're getting back into our series in Revelation, well, continuing our series of Revelation. And uh, remember how we're talking about the Revelation is this great apocalypse where the curtain's pulled back, where Jesus is going to show us what is really real. Show us himself, but also show us what is really real about our reality. The fact that he is here. And he's going to present our reality in a whole new way. Last week, we finished up quite a long section, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and into 11. And we saw how people came to believe and trust in Jesus only when Christians, only when Jesus followers, and if you're a Jesus follower today, only when you and I embrace our calling as witnesses to Jesus. Not witnesses necessarily always talking, but people who live a life to point others toward Jesus no matter what the cost. That as the church, as Christians say, we're willing to do this, no matter what the cost, that people begin to experience heart change. We see change begin to occur in their lives. And that covered a series of these six six trumpets uh, that we looked at. And today's passage uh, finishes the set with the seventh trumpet. So let's read that. It's on an insert in your bulletin, but you can follow along. And there's a few Bibles. Maybe you brought one. Follow it all along on your phones. I'm reading from the New International Version, starting with Revelation 11:15. I'm just going to read the rest of chapter 11. So first, the good news. Here it is. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, And of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. That's where everything's going. Let me just pause there for a moment. That's where everything's going. It's the goal of history. It's the goal of everything that Jesus is doing. It's the goal of the church. It's actually the goal of the book of Revelation. It's what everything's been pointing toward. The time when the world would be returned to its rightful king. And this is good news. And it results in worship. 
worship erupts. Listen to this. The 24 elders, we were introduced to them way back in chapter 4. The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. (coughs) Excuse me. Saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is actually good news. It finishes that trumpet section with this declaration that God is king, that this world that has so long suffered under the regime of evil has now been transferred to God himself. And then the worship erupts, praising God, giving thanks for his mighty work of restoring the world back to himself. And I, I hear that, and I just want to stop right there. I, that's, I just kind of want to pause. I want to soak in that. <laughs> I mean, isn't that awesome to give praise to God for being the king of the world? And yet, and yet if it's, if it's really true, if the kingdom of the world really has become the kingdom of, of God and his Messiah of Jesus, then why is the world still such a mess? Babies are still neglected. Women are still abused. Tyrants still oppress. Marriages still sour. Bodies still break. I mean, if God is king, if he's really and truly the king of the world, then why are things still such a mess? It's a pretty basic question. More Christians died for their faith in 2015 than any other year on record. The modern day slave trade is greater than the transatlantic African slave trade at its height. Men and women live in fear for their lives under vicious regimes. ISIS comes to mind, but there's others. Domestic violence still continues to rip homes apart. I mean, how can we say, how can we stand here, if you're a Jesus follower, how how can you declare with confidence that the kingdom of God is actually here? In what sense is that true? If God is king, why is the world still such a mess? Well, because quite simply, we still have an enemy. There is still an enemy that's lurking. The former tyrant, as it were, the deposed dictator of the world, he's throwing up an active resistance against this kingdom of God that is now here. He's been defeated by Jesus on the cross, cast down as we will hear, knowing that his days are numbered, and the enemy uses now every evil strategy that's at his disposal to rip and to tear and to destroy God's good plan before he's finally put down for good. And anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who lives a life pointing others toward Jesus who embraces their calling, any of us who embrace our calling to be Jesus' witnesses, to live for him and to live under his allegiance, are caught in the crush. We point people to Jesus and the enemy tries to block our every move. We talked about this a few weeks ago. 
We recognize that even as a church, as we commit ourselves to helping people find and follow Jesus, even as we take steps into doing a second service, that the enemy is going to come along and in subtle ways, in ways that we may not even be able to recognize, he's going to try to sow division. He's going to try to slow us down. He's going to try to distract us. Do you know one of the, one of the top reasons why I lose chess, but my kids still lose chess to me, is simple distraction? The devil would like to distract us. Maybe get us focusing on those people over there. Or something that was said. Or some confusion. Anything it takes to block us from doing the thing that Jesus has called us to do. And the strategies can be very subtle. You know, the enemy doesn't come at us head on very often because, well, that's too obvious. Jesus knows this. And he knows how tricky the enemy can be. He's experienced the subtlety of an enemy, of the enemy himself. And so Jesus, knowing how tricky this enemy is, he wants us, as his followers, as his people, he wants us to see the strategy. He wants us to know what's going on. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard or distracted. He wants us to be able to see the enemy's moves as they're happening and to just block them. No problem at all. That's what Jesus wants. So how does he do that? Believe it or not, here in chapter 12, which is where we're going to go next in Revelation, to do that, to help us see the enemy's moves, to help us be able to cut through all the subtlety and all the confusion, Jesus gives us a fantastic story. It's a story that's really more designed to awaken our imagination than it is to simply give us some information. What we hear next in the Revelation is like something out of a fantasy novel. It really is. It, it's, it's very large and mythic. And it's given for one reason, to help Christians, whether they were the original Christians who received this letter, uh, you know, one of these seven churches, maybe Christians in Pergamum or Ephesus, uh, what's modern-day Turkey now, or whether it was Christians who were living in the Dark Ages, whether it's Christians who have lived or are living under oppressive regimes today, or whether it's just you and I here in the Creston Valley seeking to live as his witnesses. Now, Jesus gave us a story to help us, to help us see that the daily conflict that we have, even the subtle conflicts we may have, are really a conflict between two warring kingdoms. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Jesus. And this story we're going to hear with all of its imagery, I mean, there's dragons in it, or at least there's one, but he's got a lot of heads. Uh, you know, it helps us reinterpret our experience in light of this larger war, this big battle, the victory that Jesus has already won, and yet the ongoing mop-up operation that's still in full swing. Because Jesus wants us to know that we have an enemy. This enemy has a strategy. He wants us to be given everything that we need in order to overcome the enemy and to live as his people. So let's hear this story together. It's in chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then 
Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who, quote, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, end quote. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth. And the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Well, isn't that a great story? Ah, ah. Wow, you just feel like you had story time? (laughs) Such a vivid, beautiful story. But what does it say? I mean, and I got it. For those of you, like, A, you stumbled in here this morning from somewhere else. And you're wondering, what did I stumble into? I can only say I'm sorry and stick with us and catch up where we've been and online and, and, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll, you'll enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it this morning. But if you're kind of new to church and new to the Bible, this is pretty weird stuff, right? It's pretty strange. And as we now continue in this revelation, there's going to be some strange days ahead. But if you hold on, uh, I think we'll, we'll try to, to make some sense of it. But it is an amazing story. It's a story that helps Interpret our reality apocalyptically. 
especially a story that's designed, Jesus tells it to pull back the curtain on our everyday reality through the use of a story that's quite different. Images that are new and yet old, helping us see what is not always evident to our eyes, not always obvious to our experience, that we are actually in the middle of a war. Let's get the story straight for a moment as we, as we go through it. First, there's this woman. She's described as being clothed with the sun, if you can imagine that. Um, moon under her feet, 12 stars in her head. She's dazzling, she's beautiful, and she's pregnant. The story alludes to an old story. Uh, you may have heard one time about a guy named Joseph. He had a multicolored coat. When he was a punk kid, he had a uh, dream that his dad, the sun, his mom, the moon, and yes, his 11 brothers, representing the stars, would all bow down to him. They loved him for that one. And uh, it alludes back to that story. That's where the, the, the imagery comes from. This woman's pregnant, and, and this whole story, it kind of, she represents a few different groups as you go through the story. Her image, her image is kind of fluid. And so you gotta kind of track with it, but altogether, she represents the faithful people of God. First, she represents the people of God who've come before us down through the ages, and then for a few moments, she obviously represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. And even the image of the dragon standing there waiting to destroy the male child reminds us immediately of Herod himself waiting to destroy Jesus, hearing about the report of a king that's born in Bethlehem, sending out his soldiers to destroy every baby under two years old. Remember that horrific story? That's the dragon at work. As the story goes on, she comes, this woman comes to represent the church. What we're told is that the woman is a sign. She's pointing to something beyond herself, to the great reality of God's faithful people. And then we have this enormous red dragon. We don't even have to guess who this is because we're actually told explicitly this red dragon is the ancient serpent. That's from Genesis, the early story where the, you know, the snake shows up in the garden called the devil or, or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He's also called a little later the accuser of our brothers and sisters. And we're going to be seeing more of him in the Revelation. And then, of course, there's the child himself, who is Jesus. His life, his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all the things that he did and rose to the right hand of his father are all kind of smashed together in the simple phrase, he was born and then he was snatched up to God. It makes the point that he was born to be the king. What we're told next is critical, that there's this war in heaven, and the devil loses. He gets tossed out, he gets hurled to the earth, and when he lands, he's super ticked off. He's frustrated at every turn, he's unable to destroy the child, he's unable to destroy the woman. And what does he do then? This is super important. This is actually the purpose of this whole fantastic story. This great red dragon, this ancient serpent, the devil himself, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. In other words, faithful followers of Jesus. So what's the point of all this? Why is this story given in such fantastic images? Through this use of imaginative, apocalyptic language, Jesus helps Christians see the true reality that is lurking behind their everyday struggle. 
I think this is especially helpful for these people in, in Asia, in this Roman province of Asia, as they're trying to figure out, uh, they're in, 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 you know, under an incredibly oppressive government. And, and they're being told they've got to worship the emperor. And they're being, they're being told they've got to compromise to make it work. And, and yeah, you can be loyal to Jesus when you guys get together. But out here in the rest of the world, you've got to do whatever it takes to make your way ahead. And what this story does is it rips back the curtain to show them what's really going on in those daily decisions. Those daily challenges to compromise. What's really going on in this pressure that they're experiencing as a church and as a family and as Christians. There's an enemy, and he's seeking to destroy them. He's making war against them. That behind the evil, behind the persecutions they're experiencing, behind the opposition they they face whenever they're, they're following Jesus, behind the pressures to compromise that we face on a daily level, behind all of it stands our great enemy who has a strategy to bring us down. This story really heightens, I think, our imagination, maybe even baptizes our imagination, and it prepares us for the fight of our lives. It enables us to see what's going on so that when we do run into a a compromise, when we all of a sudden are faced with a a division or or some kind of conflict that we weren't expecting, as as we're tempted to lean in and get upset with someone, as we're we're, we're figuring, oh, we're just going to forget this all anyway, all of a sudden, this image of the dragon comes to us. And we're reminded, oh my goodness, I know what's going on here. Satan is upset. Satan is waging war. The devil knows that we're committed as Christians to Jesus, and he wants to block our every move. It's so easy in the daily, normal, sort of everyday grind of life to miss that, to forget it. To forget that we have an enemy that is hell-bent on our destruction. So Jesus gave us this story so that we could overcome the enemy. And we're told in it sort of three basic strategies. I've already brought them to our attention at the start and how we can block them every time. But did you hear them as we read through the story? Um, after being told that the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the uh, accuser of the followers, uh, followers of Jesus has been cast down, this is what we heard. We're told that they, that's the followers of Jesus, triumphed over him where they overcame him. Other translations would say that. That's the accuser that they're overcoming. So they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Jack, if you go forward two slides, another one, another one. There we go. I didn't give Jack a script this morning. It's my fault, Jack. So I apologize for that. It's the last thing you have to do. (laughs) This little verse sits at the very center of the book of Revelation. Now, when people wonder, and I know you've all had conversations, you probably bumped into some, you wonder, what's the book of Revelations all about? You know, lots of answers are given to that question, folks. Lots of answers. Dragons might even show up. Beasts, for sure. Mark of the Beast in particular. Uh, there's things about, well, maybe it's a, it's a blueprint for the end. And all these different theories. But I've got to tell you, this is the center of the book of Revelation. It's what it's all about. It's the point of everything. The whole point of the letter of Revelation was written to help Christians, to empower Christians to triumph, to overcome. 
to be faithful in the midst of the pressure and the struggle. And here we're going to be told exactly how we can do that. Remember back in the, in the seven messages at the start of Revelation, the, the, in chapters 2 and 3, right? There's those seven memos we talked about, how Jesus kind of front loads the whole letter of Revelation by speaking in particular to these individual seven churches. In every one of those seven messages, Jesus says, what? To him, to they who overcome. Right? And that's a theme in there, and it's the theme of the whole book. Jesus wants us to overcome. This whole apocalypse was given so that we can be overcomers. How? How does that happen? By recognizing the enemy's strategies for our destruction and then by blocking his every move. That's how we turn this devil's checkmate into our victory. Well, let's, let's walk through these three strategies that we mentioned at the start. See, first we're told that the enemy is our accuser. That is his first basic strategy. He wants to gut our confidence in Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. And how he does that is by accusing us. The accuser tries to make our sins bigger, our failures stronger, (laughs) our darkness greater than the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Some of you know what the voice of the accuser sounds like because you struggle with this. What? You know, do you think God would just forget what a loser you are? Do you think he's forgotten what you did? You'll never be fully accepted. I mean, they let you in, but really. Or the voice that says, prove it. Prove that you're worth loving. Prove that you're worth your acceptance. The voice of the accuser might say things like, You'll always be damaged goods. You'll never really be healed. The voice of the accuser might say, well, look at you, aren't you something? You think you're a Christian? If everyone knew who you really were, you're not good enough. You know, Jesus might love other people, but have you looked in the mirror lately? You're worse than the rest of them. Some of you have heard that voice over and over again for years. That's the voice of the accuser. That's the voice that tries to remind us of our sins, tries to recall our rebellion, tries to jab us in our brokenness, shaming us in our stupidity, throwing our mistakes back in our face, all trying to declare somehow that we are unworthy of God's love. Somehow Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough for us. It's a lie. It's not true. That's the voice of the accuser. The accuser that attacks at the very heart of the good news about Jesus Christ, telling us that our sins are somehow greater than his sacrifice, that his bloodshed just wasn't strong enough. Why does he do that? Because he knows if he can gut your confidence in Jesus' sacrifice for your sin, he's got you beat. He's got me beat. He's got us beat. But we're not ignorant to that scheme, are we? No, we're not. Now, some of you might just today be realizing, oh my goodness, that's the voice I carry in my head. That's the one I've been struggling with. That's the one I've been listening to. And so today might be the first day you realize, oh, I can block that. That's what Jesus wants for you. We can overcome the accuser. How? Well, just as we read it here, we can overcome by the blood 
of the Lamb. Now, if you're new to church, this whole image of blood seems a little odd. I get it. But really, it's just a way, one of the ways that we refer to this fantastic truth that Jesus died in our place. That Jesus, the perfect Son of God, shed His blood, was whipped and beaten and hung on a cross and died for us. And that His death was completely and totally sufficient to cover all of my sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future. And not only yours and mine's, mine, but the sin of the whole world. Because of who he is. His sin is, his, his, his life and his, his, his self-giving sacrifice was totally and completely adequate to cover every imaginable sin. The accuser doesn't want us to know that though. He wants to somehow take that confidence away by saying, no, 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 no. You're the exception. But you're not. Jesus died in our place. He covered all of our sin. He took away all of our shame. He wiped the slate completely clean. He forgave us. He made us new. He stood us up on our feet and he put his Holy Spirit inside of us and he said, you are my new creation. The sins of the past no longer define our status in the present. And so when we know that, we can overcome the accuser. When we know that Jesus' blood is greater and higher and stronger than any sin of the past or any sin I might be struggling with today, we can actually mock the accusation of the accuser. We can laugh at his strategy. (laughs) You know, well, that wasn't very good. (laughs) Diabolical laughter, please. Cue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can laugh at the enemy. You can say, are you kidding me? Ah! As good and as bad and as hard and as stupid as I've been, it was nothing compared to the sacrifice of Jesus. Sin has no power over me. My past can't define my future. Jesus' sacrifice has covered everything. It's made everything well. And the accuser just cowers when we do that. So that's his first basic strategy. Gut our confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus. And our counter move is just to have utter confidence in Jesus, and to know he's got it covered. Well, what's the second strategy? We're told that the enemy is a deceiver. That ancient serpent called the devil who leads the whole world astray. If the enemy can't gut our confidence, he's going to try to create confusion about the truth. That's the way deception works. Often it's mixed in with half-truths mixed with some lies and some hints and some vague promises and some cynical questions. And they're all designed to make us fuzzy, unsure, kind of a bit confused. And, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bright anyway, so how would I be expected to understand any of this? I'm really not sure. The enemy is a liar. And he's willing to deceive and create confusion and make us fuzzy and unsure wherever he can. And he'll do that all over the place. But where does he focus in particular? He wants to create confusion in particular about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Those things are really quite clear in Scripture. They're really quite clear through Christian history. But that's where the enemy wants to create the most confusion. He knows if he can do it there, he's got us beat. This has been true from the earliest days of Christianity where early Christians, right out of the gate, had to combat ideas that Jesus was either less than human... He sort of floated, you know, five feet off the ground everywhere he went. 
He wasn't really a human. He was just sort of an apparition. Or the opposite, this idea that he was not really the son of God. I mean, he was a a great prophet, a great teacher, uh, you know, maybe someone who had attained some sort of higher consciousness than others, a model for how we should live, but not a person that we should worship. Those are the two things the early church had to combat. And you know what? Not much has changed. Like, if you look through the centuries, Christians have had to hammer all this stuff out. Right up to today, basically, it's the same thing. Repackaged again and again and again. Whether it's the latest pop thinker, spiritual guru, um, guy showing up at your door, whatever it is. It's basically the same package. Either Jesus was less than human or less than divine. And so, Christians have had to figure out, what is the truth about who Jesus is? What does it mean to follow him? The enemy knows if he can create confusion about that, he'll have us beat. How do we overcome him? Well, very simply, as it's put there, we overcome him by the word of our testimony. This is specifically aimed at how we speak, how we pray, how we uh, learn, uh, how we point, uh, how, we, how we think about the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus so deeply, knowing Jesus so clearly, is critical for us to counter this strategy of the enemy. You see, if we know Jesus so truly, then no deception can ever take hold. It can't gain any kind of place in our heart and our minds because we can immediately identify, no, no, I hear what you're saying, but that actually doesn't add up to the Jesus I actually know. This doesn't add up to the story that we know is true. The eyewitness accounts that have been delivered to us. And so we can counter deception about who Jesus is by the word of our testimony. Embracing the truth so deeply that deception simply doesn't have an entry point. Because you see how this works. If the enemy can confuse us about Jesus, we won't witness to Jesus. If we don't think Jesus really is, if we kind of think Jesus is just for us, you know, it's kind of nice that we follow Jesus, isn't it? But really, that's just an option that we've chosen. And others choose other options. And that's okay too. As long as we kind of love and hug and that's all right. That's, that's what we say as a society often, isn't it? If we are fuzzy about Jesus, if we are no longer convinced that he actually is the only hope for the world, then the enemy has us beat because when we're fuzzy about Jesus, we won't witness to Jesus. We won't, we won't arrange our lives around pointing others to Jesus. We won't make that the priority of our hearts and our minds, our money and our time. When we're confused about Jesus, we have no compelling witness about Jesus. It's a direct effect. So the devil can't gut our confidence in Jesus' sacrifice. Maybe we, we can laugh that one off. But if he can get us fuzzy about who Jesus is, he knows that at the end of the day, we'll at least keep it to ourselves. We'll just be ineffective Christians. We'll be a church that's just flatlined. We'll be harmless to his plans. We won't get in his way. So my question for you is, have you gone fuzzy about Jesus? Do you have clarity in your heart and mind about who Jesus is? Do you know him? Some of you are just exploring faith, some of you for the first time. And my challenge to you is you get into a connect group, join Alpha, is that you can begin to get more clarity about who Jesus is so that you can see the strategy of the enemy 
And you can just swat them away. But that's not all. The enemy has one more trick up his sleeve. And it's very subtle. And it's actually very devastating. We might be confident in Jesus' sacrifice. We might even be clear about the truth of Jesus. But if the enemy can make us fearful, all is lost. You see, the third strategy of the enemy is to threaten us. He's a destroyer. We heard that earlier. The enemy threatens us, telling us that if we're bold about Jesus, we're going to suffer for it. If we step up to the plate and we say, I'm a follower of Jesus in my workplace, in my family, in my neighborhood, we're going to pay dearly. And so why don't you just keep it to yourself? Why don't you just, you know, not make too many waves? We're fearful of social rejection. We're fearful of awkwardness. We're fearful that if we really take Jesus seriously, we'll have to change the way we live. And it might, let's be honest, get kind of uncomfortable. I know that's a fear that I struggle with. I'm now at midway to, I say halfway to dead. No, no offense to those of you who are 80. But I, because uh, <laughs> I'm 41. And, and uh, I'm not offended. I'm, I'm hopeful. I look at you who are over 80 and I think, yes, I'm not halfway to dead yet. Thank you, Nellie and others who have still got long ways to go yet. But I think of myself as being halfway to the grave. Hey, somewhere in there. Yeah. Some of you have less than that. Yeah, tail end. That's right. And you can start thinking fearful thoughts. Like, has it been worth it? Have the sacrifices I made been worth it? The things I've given up been worth it, or maybe maybe it isn't. What if my family suffers because of my decision to follow Jesus? What if I don't have enough money when I get old? What if what if what if I can't help my kid through school? Some of those questions. What if I find out I can't do this anymore? I mean, those kinds of fears they they come to me. And all of us can face fears when we realize, if I really am going to follow Jesus the way he's calling me to live, it's going to cost me. And it is, by the way. That's true. What the enemy wants to do is threaten us so badly that we quieten down, that we huddle up, that we say, well, you know, church is just for believers anyway. I love that one. He wants to make us cower in fear. But we're not made for fear. We can overcome the destroyer. How? I love the last part of this verse. They did not love their lives so much. They did love their lives, you understand. They didn't love them so much so as to shrink back from death. How do we overcome the destroyer? How do we overcome his threats? By loving Jesus more than we love our own lives. By loving Jesus more than we love our own comfort. By loving Jesus more than we love our own retirement. Anyone? It's true, you know. By loving Jesus more than we love our own hobbies. Some of you, if you lost a hobby, it would be like death, wouldn't it? This is how we overcome the threat 
the fear that the enemy wants to create. Saying no to fear because we're saying yes to Jesus. That we are so convinced that Jesus has said, I'm going to take you through death into resurrection life. That this life you have, as valuable and as important and as significant as it is, and I really believe that, it is short. Very, very short. And some of you know how short it is because you're getting to the short end of it. We want to make it count. Because there is a long eternity ahead after resurrection. So we don't need to cower back in fear. We can overcome by not shrinking back from death. Whatever death looks like, and very few of us, that's going to be literal death. Probably none of us uh, for, the, for the faith. We're all going to die, but not because of that. But the fears and the threats that keep us quiet, that keep us back, that, that keep us from moving forward, that keep us from making bold moves and taking risks as a church or as a family or as a friend. So let me ask you what fears or threats have kept you silent, have kept you ineffective. What fears have kept us ineffective as a church? You know, I'm just... Going to two services is not like a walk in the park for me either. You know that? Now, I I know I often seem like I'm selling it to you guys. And I'm not trying to sell it. I, I just, but I want you to know that there's fears there for me too. And there's fears there for us. But I am absolutely convinced that as a church, Jesus has called us to reach people. And the thing that will hold us back is if we're fearful to make a move because something bad might happen, because something might change, because it might be difficult or it might not work. We don't want to let fears or threats of the enemy hold us down. We can recognize that strategy. So there's the, there they are, the, the devil's checkmate. Three moves. Any one of them will work. But now that we know them, we can outwit them. We can outplay him. We can outmaneuver the enemy himself. We can answer his accusations with the total, complete, utter confidence that the sacrifice of Jesus is more than enough. We can rip the lid off his deception by knowing Jesus so deeply and so truly that if anything false comes along, you can just say, oh, come on. Are we joking today? We know who Jesus is. And we can also call his bluff on death, on threats, on fear. We can call it for what it is, a lame attempt to get us to forget that by following Jesus, we follow someone who rose again from the dead and has promised to do the same for us. Well, I'm going to finish. Is there an area in your life where you've allowed the devil and one of his strategies to work? Maybe it's accusation. And I want to challenge you to overcome by the blood of the Lamb to grab a hold of his powerful sacrifice and know that it's more than enough. Maybe it's fuzzy thinking. And you need to dig in. You need to read your Bible. You need to get with some folks and study. You need to join a connect group. Come to Alpha. I don't know what it is, but get clear on who Jesus is. Fall in love with Jesus. Find out about him. 
follow him and understand him deeply so that you can know the truth and the truth can set you free. And maybe it's fear. Maybe you've been fearful of what it means, really, for us to follow Jesus. Don't love your life so much that you shrink back from death and miss out on what God wants to do through you and through us. I want you to imagine the difference that this will make. If we were a church, if you were a man or a woman who could recognize these strategies as they come out of the gate, I want you to imagine the difference that would make for you in your life, in your family, in this church. I want you to imagine the impact it would have in this valley where we are simply not confused about how the enemy lamely tries to slow us down because we're so committed to seeing people find and follow Jesus. That we're followers who can't be cowed, won't back down, humble in our confidence in Jesus, compassionate in our clarity about Jesus, and utterly utterly fearless. That's what Jesus wants for us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that your sacrifice was more than enough. That who you are, the way, the truth, and the life is so compelling that lies and deception just fall away when people meet you. And that your promise of resurrection is so strong that we can face whatever threats Whatever comes against us, we can face it with confidence, loving you more than we love life itself. I pray that each one of us would overcome. I pray for those of us who are particularly struggling in in one of these areas that we would experience your overcoming strength and power so that we can be your people. In your name we pray. Amen.